chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, I'd love for you to uh, look at this from your own Bible. This is a long chapter. We're not going to, in fact, we'll read kind of a minority of these verses, not most of them. There's a lot in there, though, and I do hope that we can uh, study this tonight. What we're doing in, uh, on Sunday nights for four weeks, this is three or four, looking at the life of Solomon. You could, of course, you could spend a lot of time there, but <clears throat> we're just looking at some of the, really some of the high points. And uh, next week we're going to get to one that I've mentioned, I guess, every week. I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in view of the fact that what we've already talked about the last two weeks and what we're going to talk about tonight, then how can next week, how can the text of next week happen, which is 1 Kings 11, where everything falls apart for Solomon. I mean, how do you, how do you get from the guy who God said to him, basically, you know, you can, you can have anything you ask for. Just, just ask. And he, he prayed for wisdom. He said, I just, I, just want to, I just want a discerning spirit. I want an understanding mind. I want, to, I want to know your heart, God. God gave it to him. And he was a man of this, this great wisdom. Tonight we're going to look at this prayer that he prayed. In 1 Kings 8, this amazing prayer. I hope you'll take time to read it all on your own time. And then next week think, things fall apart. How does that happen? So, just a little teaser, <clears throat> a little trailer. Come back next Sunday night, and we'll finish up this little short series by looking at 1 Kings 11. You know, J.D. Greer um, talks about some great commencement speeches, and um, I think it's interesting that what Solomon does with the temple is basically a commence, commencement, kind of speech, commencement speech. He, he, com- he uh, dedicates the temple, but he does it in the form of a prayer. And, um, but J.D. Greer looked at some of the recent commencement speeches. And, and I've done this a few times. I've not, I haven't spoken at many commencement. Uh, I haven't done many of those. But I was doing one a few years ago. And uh, so I, I got online and I was like, well, you know, what are you supposed to accomplish in a commencement speech? And there are some really famous ones out there. Um, I suppose the one by Steve Jobs is... is uh, one of the best. Have you, have you watched it? You, you know, get on YouTube. Watch Steve Jobs' commencement. Was it Stanford, I think? Maybe Stanford? Yeah, Stanford in 2005. I actually have, have a little excerpt from it here. But he, he talk, in that commencement address, he, he tells his graduates, he, he talks about this slogan from a 1970s magazine called The Whole Earth Catalog, like a <clears throat> travel journal in the days before Google. Uh, the magazine ran for a few years, is discontinued. Their final edition, the back cover featured a picture, a beckoning country road early in the morning leading off into the mountains, and underneath it were the words, stay hungry, stay foolish. If you've seen that or listened to that speech by Steve Jobs, you remember those words. He goes on and he says, and he talks about that's, that's become the theme of his life. And if you read that <clears throat> biography of Steve Jobs by uh, Walter Isaacson, wasn't it, that... Uh, he, he, he lived according to that motto. He, he did. And, but he shares some of those thoughts in that commencement speech that were, that were pretty neat. There was one by Will Ferrell, which was of a different spirit entirely. Um, at USC, this was this year. And um, he says, let me read you just a small excerpt from it. But Will Ferrell says, I would like to say thank you for your warm welcome. I would also like to apologize to all the parents sitting there thinking, Will Ferrell? Why Will Ferrell? I hate him. I hate his movies. He's gross. Although he's much better looking in person. Has he lost weight? 
It goes on and he says, I graduated from this college years ago with a degree of sports information, a degree so arduous, so prestigious that they discontinued it a few years later. Today I also received my honorary doctorate. I've been informed that I can now perform minimally invasive surgery at any time and in any place, even if people don't want it. In fact, I'm legally obligated to perform a surgery at the end of today's address or my degree will be revoked. If you have a sore tooth you want removed, please meet me at the surgery center. And by surgery center, I mean the windowless van in that parking lot over there. <clears throat> That's kind of typical Will Ferrell, isn't it? Commencement speeches. I was looking up something recently and ran across Mark Zuckerberg's from just a couple months ago, Facebook guy. And it was pretty interesting as well. So, you, you know, you can get online, you can find all these different things, these famous people who, in, in often in pretty prestigious settings, they, they try to communicate these, these, these words to these college graduates getting ready to go a lot in places like Stanford and USC and these other places, you know, getting ready to go out and conquer the world. And it's interesting. There's some ways in which what Solomon does here has a similar purpose, but it's so different, as you might expect, uh, because his is very much of a God-focused thing. And for the next little bit, I want us to look at it. Now, for context, what's going on here is Solomon has been working on the temple for seven years. David accumulated all the timber, the gold, silver, all that. His father got it all ready. And then Solomon employed 150,000 laborers who worked for seven years to build the temple. 150,000 laborers for seven years, and they built the temple. It was layered in gold, 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver. Uh, someone estimated that he used <coughs> 4 to 5%. If those numbers right there are 4 to 5% of all the gold that's ever been mined would have been used on the temple on that, for that construction. The temple was, uh, was, you know, read the Old Testament, starting at this point and, and going on. The temple was so important to them. I mean, it was the focal point of their worship. You know, they had their tabernacle up until this point. Tabernacle was a temporary structure meant to be built and then torn down and moved to a different place as they were going through the wilderness, you know, and then they would put it up again and tear it down, put it up, tear it down. So it was a temporary structure. <laughs> the temple was, was, was amazing. And it was, it was beautiful, and it was supposed to, to be the place where God dwelled. We'll talk more about that in a second. Now, in another way, before we move on to, to what it says about God, in another way, it's pretty interesting how it, it prefigures Christ in so many ways. It was, if you were here Wednesday night, I think a week and a half ago, when Kerry Richardson was here, he was talking about this, this passage in the Old Testament, talking about, you remember 2 Samuel 7, where you guys here a couple weeks ago when uh, he's talking about that promise God made to David when he said, I'm going to raise up a son and I'm going I'm to construct a temple and the kingdom will never depart from your house, that promise in 2 Samuel 7. Well, in that promise, in some ways it applies to Solomon because Solomon did build a temple. Solomon was a king, but Kerry talked about this in his lesson a couple weeks ago. In, in so many ways, Solomon didn't fulfill everything. And one of those was Solomon did not build a temple that lasted forever. Because this temple that Solomon's going to build, this is around <clears throat> 975. This is around 975 B.C. 400 years later, 
roughly 400 years later, this temple is going to be destroyed. So it's going to last for about four centuries, which is amazing. But it's going to be absolutely razed. And they reconstruct it later, and it's never as, as pretty as it was. But uh, it's, not, it's not a temple that lasts forever. But do you remember Jesus, when he comes and he, he's looking at the temple, and he says, I'm going to rebuild the temple, remember this, in three days? And then that's a, that's a promise, of course, that the temple, the ultimate temple, is not this physical structure, but rather it's the body of Jesus that was put in the tomb on Friday and resurrected on Sunday, and it lives forever. That's the temple, the true temple. And we are his ongoing representatives as a temple, the church. But anyway, it's just a lot of ways in which this looks ahead to Jesus. One more, and then we'll move on, is <clears throat> we've talked about this before, but in the temple you had the holy place and the most holy place. You know, the outside part and the inside part, perfect cube. In it you had the Ark of the, uh, Ark of the Covenant, which we'll look at in a second. And you got the cherubim, these angelic creatures, the wings stretching up. You got the mercy seat. I mean, it was a amazing deal and God the smoke would come down when God was dwelling in the temple but separating that from everything else you had this veil <clears throat> and that veil you didn't ever go in it except once a year and only the high priest and if he didn't do everything he was supposed to do he would never come out because he'd die in there it was a, it was a big deal when Jesus died on the cross just, I think this connection is pretty cool when Jesus died on the cross right before he died earthquake came and remember what it did some of the tombs were open, but one other significant thing it did was it, it tore this veil in two. It was a pretty significant thing. Four inches thick, it was, it was, pretty, it was pretty substantial veil and, uh, and just ripped it in two. Signifying what? We have, through our high priest, we have continual access to God. Uh, and so it's, it's, there are a lot of connections that would be worth looking at. Okay, having said all that, laying the stage, the, you know, the groundwork for... What I want us to talk about, I'd like for you to look at 1 Kings 8 with me. <clears throat> now, 1 Kings 8, they bring the ark into the temple, Ark of the Covenant. <coughs> if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know some what it looks like. Uh, Harrison Ford took it and put it in Area 51 at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then if you guys are too young or never saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you don't know what I'm talking about. But um, he put it somewhere in a warehouse. Lots of people died. First uh, Kings eight. Look at look at ten verses ten through thirteen just for a second. First Kings eight ten. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. This is this is God's presence. Cloud filled the house of the Lord, filled the temple, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you a, an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Which that's not really true, not in any kind of real or ultimate sense, absolute sense, but in some sort of symbolic way it's true. So they, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. you got this cloud, and, and, and Solomon says, you know, God dwells in deep darkness. In other words, God can't be seen by us. He's, he's in this, this thick fog, and we in our finiteness, we can't, our finitude, we can't, we can't see him. Now, for the next little bit, if you're looking on the back of the bulletin, we're on the second point now, if you have an interest in such things. Um, second part of this, talk about the temple. Now we're going to talk about what Solomon says in this commencement speech about God, or what he implies about God. And uh, this is pretty pretty fascinating. Okay, so here, here are the things. 
The text we just read, 12 and 13, Solomon says, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Here's something I want you to think about for a second. This signifies Solomon's recognition that God is a mysterious and yet accessible God. Mysterious but accessible. Now, all sorts of ways in which this comes true in a very real sense in the New Testament in in much more accessible way. But he's, he's a mysterious but accessible God. When it says he'll dwell in thick darkness, that just means he dwells in a place we can't see. We can't get there. We, we can't see God. We can't even fathom who God is or what God looks like in any kind of meaningful way only when God reveals himself to us, which we'll look, a, look at in, in, just a, in just a second. But he is a mysterious yet accessible God. He exists without a beginning and without an ending. He stands outside of a universe with it, that is at least 12 trillion light years across. A light year being is the distance that, a light, that light can travel in one year. The Bible says he calls all of the 3,000 billion trillion stars by name. And yet, not a single hair falls from your head without God's knowledge. That's, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy in a world of 7 billion plus people to feel like you're unknown or whatever. Um, God, God is very in tune with what's going on. <clears throat> it's pretty neat to listen to or read smart people. <clears throat> and there are some people, when I hear them, and when I listen to them, when I read them, <clears throat> it's just, it's, it's, amazing, it's amazing. There's this, there's this thing in New York City in Manhattan called uh, Socrates in the City. It's organized by Eric Metaxas, who has written a few books. And, uh, and he organizes it, and he has these different speakers come in. You can listen to all these speeches. <clears throat> and he has people like Francis Collins. Francis Collins is, was the lead. He was the leader of this project that mapped the human genome. Whenever that was, that wasn't too long ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, <clears throat> which was an incredible feat to do that. And he lectures and he, and he talks about some of that complexity. And by the way, uh, Francis Collins was someone who was an atheist till he was in his mid-20s. And he started studying science and science led him to become a believer in God because of all the complexity and all the, the, uh, the way the world just seems to be put together in a certain way. Anyway, he was the one who led that human genome projects, pretty, it's pretty amazing. But to hear somebody talk like that is, is pretty impressive. John Polkinghorn was another speaker, and he talks about the complexity of physics and mathematics, and it's, it's pretty amazing. I hear somebody like that, and I think, you know, that's, that's really, really, a, just, it's just unbelievable that somebody can, can be that smart and have his mind wrapped around all these facts. Uh, and then there are most of the rest of us. Uh, there are things that we don't have any idea about. Some of you are different from me in this respect. Some of you know a lot about cars. You're pretty good at it. I take my car to the shop. The mechanic comes out, you know, and he says, it's the alternator. And as a man, I always do something like this. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was, I was thinking that's what it was. I, I, didn't, I didn't think it had been alternating very well and figured it, was a, figured it was the alternator. So, you know, $1,200, let's go ahead and, as I almost, I'll just let you do it. You just go ahead and do it. I don't, you know, wouldn't want you to go to any more trouble um, without being paid for it. So, you know, go ahead and do it. And, you know, that's what, and you hear these people talking about this stuff. It's like, you know, I have, I have no, no clue, no clue. And it's just because I, I would have, if it was back in the simple days, but they've gotten so complex lately with uh, computers and all that. You know what I'm talking about. You just can't keep up to speed on these things. I am, um, my phone here is, you read that biography by Steve Jobs, you know all the stuff that went into making a phone like this one or the Android that some of you are using or just a dumb phone for that matter. But this is a pretty amazing this is a pretty amazing piece of equipment right here. I took mine out two or three weeks ago to test how waterproof it was to see if it could stand up to a flood of Noahic proportions. And it's not as waterproof as one might like. So some of these buttons don't work. Do you, you know, you, you, you take something like this, and there are people who know a lot about this phone. They know, you know, they can fix it, but they, more than that, these people, who designed this, this touchscreen. I mean, it, it really is an amazing work of engineering. <clears throat> typically, though, here's the point I'm driving. You know, typically, you got, you, got somebody, you got somebody who knows this pretty well. That guy, that lady, smart, okay? <clears throat> you got people who know tons of stuff about the universe, lots of things about cars, about mathematics. But all those people typically are very specialized. These, these guys, I was, listening, I was mentioned to a moment ago, these, um, at the Socrates in the city, they have their PhD in like, you know, physical chemistry. And they know a lot about science. But these, these, these people, you get them talking about, you know, something else like philosophy or talking about a phone or maybe talking about art or something like that. And they, they may be able to have an intelligent conversation, but they don't know everything about art. They, don't know, every, they know everything about their particular little subspecialty, right? The, the point I'm getting at is the way, the way the Bible talks about God, God has no limits. He's not finite in any respect. He has, there's no subspecialty that is outside of the scope of his knowledge. That's what Solomon is talking about right here when he says, God dwells in deep darkness, but I've built a house for him. What he's saying is, we can't approach God, but God is, <coughs> God, because of his love for us, he is condescending, he's descending down in some sort of way so that we might sort of meet God at the margins, you know. That's what he's talking about there, that deep darkness thing. He dwells in thick darkness, but I've built him a house. I said he's accessible. Here's the second idea. He's narrowly accessible. Look down if you're still there with me in 1 Kings 8. <clears throat> Look at verses 27 through 29. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built? Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, 
the place of which you've said my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. See, see what he said back up in verses, what, verse 13. I built you this house that you may dwell in forever. God's accessible, sort of, here. But then he says down below, he says, I know this house can't contain you. So we're, we're, we're doing this in a very accommodative kind of way. God dwells in thick darkness. He's out there. He's everywhere. He's in our presence, but he's somehow distant from us. And yet I built this house that contained him, but the house can't contain him. So he's accessible, but, but in a limited kind of way. Here's, here's the thing. We are, you know this, but we are very, very finite people. We cannot comprehend God. And that is why at some point, no matter how smart we get, how much we think we understand, how long we go to school, how specialized we get, how deep we go in a certain area, we are finite and, and we cannot know God. We cannot know God outside of the ways in which God reveals himself to us. So we see certain things about God. We can kind of intuit things about God from the general revelation. That's you know, changing of the seasons, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the way the world works, and all this intricacy and all that. We, we get some sort of idea about the orderliness of God. But you can't know really about God's love so much through that. We learn about God through his, often called his special revelation, which is, which is the word of God that tells us who God is, what he's done, how he thinks. But even then, our, our mind, our understanding of God is limited by our finitude to what we have in this, you know? And so when we start thinking that, I know the Bible says this, but, I'm, gonna run, I'm running from the sun. Um, we, we, and, and I see this a lot, I, and I know you do as well. I see this sometimes, especially when it comes to some, something that's going on in culture. And, and sexuality, I mean, honestly, you know, sexuality is one of those things right now with, with all the stuff about, you know, transgender, same-sex marriage, and, 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 and all this and the way their culture is just, you know, full on with accepting whatever and, and, and no boundaries whatsoever. And any boundaries, well, that's a, an old view of God or an old view of the Bible or whatever. See, the thing is, when we think we know better than God, when we, when we say anything like, I know the Bible says this, but we got to be very careful with that. I know there are certain cultural things in Scripture. So it's not as if we, uh, we don't sometimes understand that that was a, a specific meaning for a specific culture, right? But we also need to be very careful when we make those kinds of arguments, unless we have good reasons to do so. We take the Bible and believe that this is the revelation of the mind of God. And we need to be careful about saying, you know, but... But this is what I think. God, God offends us. Uh, and if he doesn't offend our culture in some respect, then we don't really serve the living God because he's infinite and his ways are above our ways and we don't understand all of it to the extent that we do. We do so because of his revelation to us. All right, here's the third one. God is a promise-keeping God. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, and he goes on. Really what I'm interested in for now is that little statement there. He fulfilled what he promised. Here's what Solomon says. God, <coughs> God does what he says. He does what he says. 
Verse 20, the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. Verse 24, you've kept with your servant David. My father, what you declared to him, you did what you said. Verse 25, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, you shall not like a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. I know you do what you say you're going to do, God. Verse 26, let your word be confirmed which you've spoken to your servant David, my father. God, God does what he says. He's a promise-keeping God. Let me ask you something quickly, to, just thinking about how this applies to us. Do you live your life as if you trust in all the promises of God? The answer to that is probably something like this. I try to, but I don't really. Not fully. If you truly believe that God kept every promise that he's ever made, how would it change the way you live your life? How would it change? I mean, there are lots of things... Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Here's one. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. In other words, give to God the best of what, I give, what he gives you. Everything will work out okay. Do we believe that really? Give him the first, give him the first fruits. Give him the best of what he gives you and don't worry about stuff. Do you do that? Do we do that? Do we really do that? Of your, of your time, of your talents, of your money, of your stuff, of your whatever. You give God the first fruits. If you really believe that he'll keep that promise, he'll take care of us. Maybe we believe it, but hmm, not, maybe not all the way. And I, this, I'm a little bit concerned about how God may define taking care of me. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing will be withheld from those whose walk is right with him. Do we believe, <coughs> we believe God's going to take care of us, that God's going to give us the good things that we need as long as we walk with him? Do we believe that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you? Because just prior to that, he says, don't worry, don't be anxious about anything. We believe we seek first the kingdom of God, he's going to take care of everything else. Maybe we believe that in some sort of intellectual way, but how many of us struggle with anxiety and worry through the week about our kids, about family, about health, about economy, about the country, about the church, about whatever? You know, if we truly believe these promises, and God will keep those promises, it would fix so much. I think, I can't remember where I heard it recently, but somewhere, somebody I was listening to, a preacher, said that he tries to live by this motto, and I guess maybe we all do. Maybe I think he does it a little bit better than, than I do. But he says, I've just decided to live my life in this way. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to be obedient to him, and I'm going to trust that he'll take care of everything else. I mean, that sounds pretty simple, and it's pretty clearly taught in Scripture that's what we ought to do. But working that out in daily life is sometimes more difficult, isn't it? But, but Solomon seems to be saying, in fact, he doesn't seem to be, he is saying, you are a promise-keeping God, so I'm going to trust that you're going to keep these additional promises that you've made. He's a promise-keeping God. That's what, David, what Solomon says about David. Look, look, two more, quickly. Chapter 8, verse 33. Actually, this one goes for about 20 verses. <coughs> I'm going to read about three or four of them. God is a God who is a grace-extending God. He's a God who extends grace. Look at... 46. There's a lot of this in this prayer about um, God, please watch over us, watch over these people because they're going to rebel against you. But if they come back, will you please accept them back? You, 
you, you said you would. He's referring to Deuteronomy. You said if they rebel against you and yet they come back and repent and, and uh, come back to you that you'll accept them back. So please do that. Verse 46, if they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen and the house that I've built for your name. So all this has been... If they do this, verse 49, then hear, hear in heaven. That doesn't mean just know that they said it. Usually in the Bible when it says hear, it means do, you know, respond in kind. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions that they've committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them and on and on and on. You know, verses 35 through 39, read, read those. I mean, it's just all throughout this prayer. But he basically says, God is a, he's a God who's, he dwells in thick darkness. He's inaccessible and yet he's accessible, but he's narrowly accessible in the way that he's specified. We access him. He's a, he's a God who extends grace. This is the kind of God that he's praying to. Last one, verses 41 through 43, he is an outward-focused God. Do you remember the promise that God made to Abraham? I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. <clears throat> I'll give you a land. And through you, I will bless the earth. I'll bless all the nations. Uh, God is a God who focuses on people who are out there, not just in here. He's an outward-focused God. Verse 41, Likewise, when a foreigner who's not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to cause to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name you see what he's saying uh, God I know that you're an outward focused God you you are someone who is concerned not only about Israel you're concerned about the world you're an outward focused God and and if our theology causes us to erect fences that keep people out something's wrong with the theology the maddest Jesus ever got, apparently, is when they were exchanging money and all that, selling things and exchanging currency in the temple. <clears throat> and, and I think what it was is not so much that they were exchanging currency, but that they were doing so in the court of the Gentiles, which was the part of the temple that had been constructed specifically so that non-Jewish people could have access to the God of heaven. And Jesus turns over the tables and runs them out of the temple apparently because they were putting up fences that kept non-Jewish people from accessing God. We need to be careful in our dealings, in our worship, in our teaching, in our interactions with people outside of Christianity, 
that we don't do things that keep them away from God. Because that, if I can use that example of Jesus in, in any kind of normative way, then, then that makes Jesus angry when people keep people out of the kingdom. He's an outward-focused God. That's the God we serve. It's a commitment, commencement speech, sort of. But it's a lot better than Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Will Ferrell. A lot better. Because it directs the attention of the people. He does this. He prays this prayer in front of the people. It directs the attention of the people, not to themselves, not to this latent, uh, you know, uh, every commencement speech like those I was talking about earlier. They're going to end with something like, you can do anything. You can conquer the world. You can climb the highest mountain. You can do anything. Nothing can hold you back. You know, that's, that's kind of the message that permeates most of these speeches. But what Solomon does at this commencement speech is he says, if you'll trust in God, God will do what he said he would do. And everything will go well for you if you trust God. In fact, that's, in some ways, that's the message of the Bible. If you're not a Christian tonight, we, uh, we come here tonight to, of course, study together and encourage one another and to worship God. But we also do so because we want to give you an opportunity to confess your faith in Jesus Christ and put him on in baptism. If there's anyone here who's not a Christian and has come to the point in your journey of faith where you recognize the need to just, you know, sell out and go ahead and become a Christian. We would love to invite you in and to, to be a, a part of that as we baptize you into Jesus. Uh, many of you have already done that. Perhaps you need to come back to him tonight and, and ask for prayers or encouragement from your church family here. We're here for you too. Let's stand and sing this song.